first decoration day and I opened it and here was a handwritten narrative on a piece of cardboard at the bottom of it it had a name Berwick but it listed a date and the New York Herald Tribune I went over and got out the New York Herald Tribune for that date in late spring of 1865 in Charleston South Carolina and whoever wrote that down put the wrong date I kept looking and kept looking and kept looking and kept looking and finally, there it was. Verbatim, that story. It was describing a parade held in Charleston, South Carolina on May 1st, 1865. The Civil War had ended, just ended. Charleston had been evacuated by the Confederates back in February. The people left in Charleston, by and large, were all African Americans and Union troops, some white, some black. And the story on this narrative was people gathered on the old planter's horse track, the racetrack in Charleston. It was called the Washington Race Course, and they held this extraordinary parade. In the last six to eight months of the war, the Confederates had converted the infield of that racetrack into an open-air prison and about 260 Union soldiers had died of exposure and disease. And they'd all been thrown in a mass grave out behind the grandstand of the race course. We now have photos of that grandstand. The story was just almost unbelievable when I first read it. About 10,000 people marched around the old planter's race course. And the oval is still there in a park. But it said it was led by uh, some two or 3,000 black children carrying armloads of roses and flowers and singing John Brown's body, followed by black women, black men, and then Union troops. And they marched around the course, and then they gathered in this cemetery that had been created by local black workmen, as many as could fit into the cemetery. And they heard preaching from five black ministers, according to this article, and a small black children's choir sang the national anthem, America the Beautiful, and three or four spirituals. After this ceremony, broke up and went back into the infield of the old racetrack and did what most of us do on Memorial Day. They had, they had picnics, they had a speaker stand with speeches. The children ran around. But back around the graveyard, they had built a fence all the way around it, and they whitewashed the fence, and they had an archway, entryway. And over the archway, they painted the inscription, Martyrs of the Race Course. These were the freed people of Charleston paying tribute to the Union dead. And it was their way of declaring the meaning of the war. That's the first Memorial Day. Listening to Reset Race, you now tuned in the Reset Race. Uh, uh, you're listening to Reset Race, you now tuned in the Reset Race. Put them back on the grill again, we grilling them. Put them back on the grill again, we grilling them. Put them back on the grill again, we grilling them. Back on the grill again, we grilling them. Uh, you're listening to Reset.
set race. Adults need reparations to make America make great. America uh, great. You're tuned in to reset race. We no longer starving while others eat off our plate. No. You're listening to reset race. We focused on our justice claim. We know what is at stake. Uh, you're tuned in to reset race. You'll find out who really done justice and really who fake. On the edge, go back to U.S. Southern plantations. Pennies, Jim Crow, and mass incarceration. Redlining lynchings, we are old from this nation. You're not about justice if you ain't for reparations. MG, the wise one, cousin mother intellectual. Samantha bringing fire, anti-black, we pressing you. No permanent friends and no permanent enemies. The backbone of the country, the way you need our energy. You gon' see, listening to reset race. You now tuned in the reset race. Uh, uh. You're listening to reset race. You now tuned in the reset race. Uh, put them back on the grill again. We grilling them. Put them back on the grill again. We grilling them. Put them back on the grill again. We grilling them. Back on the grill again. We grilling them. Uh. You're listening to reset race. Adults need reparations to make America great. Uh, you're tuned in to reset race. We no longer starving while others eat off our plate. No. You're listening to reset race. We focused on our justice claim. We know what is at stake. Uh, you're tuned in to reset race. You find out who really about justice and really who we uh. Welcome to Reset Race. My name is John C. I am an average American Negro. Back with the family. Uh, we got a special guest here today. Uh, well, before I get into this, usually when you hear me hosting the show, that means that we're going to be talking about things uh, dealing with our culture. So we just did one episode about our dialect. And now we're going to talk about our food, which is a you know, big staple of any ethnic culture. And we got a special, special guest here today. Um, so we're going to let our guest introduce herself and tell them a little bit about herself. Adrian, uh, introduce yourself to the people. Yeah, I'm Adrian Miller, the Soul Food Scholar. My tagline is dropping knowledge like hot biscuits. That's what we're going to do now. Uh, I am a former attorney. That's how that was my legal training was my initial profession. I'm a former Politico, worked in the Clinton White House and for Colorado governor. Uh, my day job now is I'm executive director of the Colorado Council of Churches, um, but I'm also a certified barbecue judge and I took this pivot. So I'm a food writer. So I've written a, a books on the history of soul food, Black Chefs in the White House, and African-American barbecue. Hey, well, all right. Woo. Yeah, I, yeah, I told you, you're coming up. All right, all right so let me, let's go to, let, let me go to my sister. All right, well, Sister Morgan, no Joe Morgan, no Joe Miss Morgan, introduce yourself, sister. Hi, I'm Morgan Malachi. I'm from Philadelphia. I'm an activist. You can find me at Cali Tastas on Twitter. Um, yeah, and I've, I've been a chef basically since, well, since I was 17 years old. So it's nice to meet you, Adrian. Yeah, good to meet you. All right, Michelle. All right, let's go to the police. He's Sam, talk to the people. So I'm Sam, AKA the Khaleesi. You can kind of find me on Twitter. I'm excited to be here with our guests. So unlike normal, I'm gonna keep it short. All hell can kill monger. That's all we got to say. Joey, where you at, bro? Y'all already know. All hell can kill monger. Uh, the last living American patriot, leader of the resistance, and self-proclaimed king of the Negroes. Back again with the family. Let's get to it. All right, for sure, for sure. And last but not least, you know, my big cousin Mud. Cousin Mud, introduce yourself, cousin. 
What's up? Uh, they call me Mud. Uh, you can find me on my social media at of lineage. That's O F lineage, Twitter and Instagram. Um, creator of Bitter Dose TV. Let's go ahead and get into the show. All right. So soul food. Uh, you know, typically, like I guess you know, when it comes to Black Americans, for some reason, when it comes to our dialect, our music, people try to act like these things are not like real parts of, our, of an ethnic culture. And it, that particularly happens in soul food, where they say, oh, this is slave food. This is just, you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not really a cuisine or food. So uh, first question I got for you, Adrian, is like, when did you start getting into the cuisine, uh, uh, basically the cuisine uh, or, or our food? And, and what made you want to deep, dig deep into the origins of soul food, Black American uh, uh, cuisine? Yeah, so the short answer is unemployment. So um, I was working in the Clinton White House. Um, and at that time in my life, I wanted to be, have a life in politics. So I was trying to get back to my home state, Colorado, so that I could start my political career. Um, but the job market was really slow. Was, um, I was watching a lot of daytime television. I said, you know, I should read something. So I went to the local bookstore and I got this book on the history of Southern food written by this guy named John Edgerton. And in that book, he said that the tribute to black achievement in American cookery had yet to be written. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Um, the book was 14 years old when I picked it up. So I just emailed him out of the blue and I, I just said, uh, wrote to him and, and said, hey, Mr. Edgerton, you wrote this. Uh, do you think this is still true? And he said, yeah, you know, nobody's really taken on the full story. There's always room for another voice. So why not yours? So seriously, it was that one sentence in that book that started me on the journey. Um, and so uh, to, that, that led to my first book on soul food. So to do that work, I read 3,500 oral histories of formerly enslaved people. I read 500 cookbooks, not all of them off, uh, African-American authored because I wanted to put um, African-American food traditions in a broader context. So I was looking at cookbooks from Europe, Asia, Africa, the Americas, all over the place. Um, and then I read thousands of newspaper or magazine articles because we have these companies, including uh, the Library of Congress who are digitizing these old newspapers and uh, magazines and the word searchable. And then because I care about my subject so much, I decided to eat my way through the country. So I went to 150 soul food restaurants, 35 cities in 15 states. So God, that's hey, what you, mean, <laughs> you might 135 soul food? God damn, that's a lot. Yeah, of, 100, a 150, lot of business, bro. Man. That's a lot of cornbread right there, bro. A lot of yep. cornbread. Yep. All in the name of research though, right? Amen. Amen. For the answers. <laughs> for the answers. I'm sorry. Continue, please. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So when I first started it, you know, given that one sentence in the paragraph, I thought the book I was going to write was going to be the definitive history of African-American food, cuisine, culture, cooks, all of that, because I'd reached out to some older African-American uh, food writers who were more well-established. And I asked them, you know, just to make sure that they agreed with Edgerton and they did. And they said, well, look, you're not going to find that much because this country is racist and our story, our history has never been really told. Um, but once I got into the internet, bro, I mean, there's so much stuff that I was finding. So what I found is that our story has been told because black cooks were the, they were the face of Southern cooking and barbecue and, and a lot of traditions and the ways that Latinos dominate commercial kitchens today. That's what black folks did a hundred years ago. So the history is there. We just haven't retold it. There's a bit of shame about it. Um, and, you know, one thing I'll leave with you is uh, if you think about it, every aspect of black culture, black, you know, American black culture has gone global. The way we talk, dress, entertain, play sports, clothes we wear, all, you know, all that stuff. 
except our food. And I think we just have an attitude about our food. And so we don't have cheerleaders for it in the way that we do for other parts of our culture. Um, and so to the extent that our food does go global, it's disconnected, it's disconnected from African-Americans. Um, and, you know, and another example I'll give you is the 1619 Project, right? Wonderful work, next level, not one thing about food. So the question is, what is that? And I think it's because there's a stigma that this is slave food that's been forced upon African-Americans. And so it doesn't recognize the complexity and the artistry of this thing we call soul food, which really brings together the culinary techniques, traditions, and ingredients of three different places, West Africa, Western Europe, and the Americas. Um, so much of my work has been trying to get people to understand that story and to embrace it and not run away from it. That's so here I grew up in kitchens with all black men and my kitchens were male dominated, black male dominated, even when I became a head chef. And I said recently that I feel like because of the change in the kitchen, uh, the, the culinary taste of America is also changing. I see it in little subtle ways, the condiments on the table, the hot sauce, like, I, you know, I see those things. Absolutely. And, um, you know, what would be interesting is to go back 100 years ago and see how we had influenced the American table in those subtle ways as well. Because, he, I mean, any restaurant, I mean, German restaurants, Italian restaurants, they, a lot of them had black cooks right alongside the, you know, the cooks of that tradition. So we had a role and an influence. All right. Well, let's 100 years ago, let's go back further. Then. Let's go back as far as you can to the origins of our cuisine. Our, our food. Uh, can you kind of try to give kind of like a general explanation like of the origins of soul food? You know, that has West African influences, you know, that has European influences, Native American influences, and maybe something else. Who knows? So right. can you explain to the audience, you know, something about like the origins of our food. Yeah, so you know, um, black people did not come here as blank slates. They came here as as human beings that had their traditions, their way of doing things, and they brought ingredients. You know, things like okra, black eyed peas, watermelon, sesame seeds. They called them bene. Um, you know, and familiarity with uh, ground nuts, peanuts, sweet potatoes, all kinds of stuff. And so they bring that to the Americas. And, um, and slavery was uh, segmented. So, you know, the big plantations, like what you see on Gone, and the, on the Gone with the Wind and things like that, that was only really 40% of what where enslaved people lived. Most people were on, um, enslaved people were on small farms. So um, on those small farms, they often ate out of the same pot as the slaveholder because it didn't make sense to have a separate team of cooks. But on those larger plantations, you had a separate team of cooks. But um, grossly overgeneralizing, the um, typical day for an enslaved person was you got up before dawn, uh, you usually fed out of a trough, um, and the trough was filled with buttermilk and crumbled up cornbread, something like that. You had to eat with your fingers or some kind of seafood shell, because you weren't going to get a knife or fork, because that's a potential weapon, right? And our people were about resistance, so every opportunity that they had, they took it. Um, and so they, they had to do that. Um, and then they had to go work in the fields. Um, and there was a separate team of cooks for them um, in the, the field hands, as well as the people working in what was called the big house where the slaveholder lived. So two separate teams of cooks. And then middle of the day, that same trough would have been washed out and then filled with seasonal vegetables. Um, maybe there was a little bit of meat to season them, but not much. Um, and you got water. Uh, and then at the end of the day, um, you got a, the leftovers from that midday meal. And that was called supper. 
Uh, usually you, you didn't get this until after the sun went down, right? Because people work from um, sunrise to sun, sun up, or sun up to sunrise or sunset. Um, so that was the typical schedule. Now on the larger plantations and, and even on the small farms, the work schedule usually slowed or stopped by the time you got to the noon on Saturday. So enslaved people had the rest of Saturday, all of Sunday off until Monday morning when they had to start working again. So that's when they did um, gardening, foraging, hunting, fishing, all these other things to supplement their, their food. Uh, they could do the things that took more time like barbecuing, making cakes, some of the things we think of making fried chicken, you know, some of the things we think of today for soul food. Um, and so what I tell people is during the week, eating those seasonal vegetables with little or no meat is very close to what we call vegan today. Um, and so the way, you know, and black veganism is huge right now. So I tell people it's not a departure from traditional soul food. It's really a homecoming. I don't mean to cut you off. I'll let you keep going. Yeah. But so you're telling me that slaves didn't eat hog malls and chitlins every day and black eyed peas and hog malls every day. That's what you're telling me? Because that's what I've been I hearing. Yeah, yeah, no, man, that was special occasion stuff. So they may get a little pork to season those vegetables, but you know, it wasn't like everybody got that in their portion, right? Um, so the things when we think about chitlins and hog, a lot of this stuff was special occasion food. Um, once a year, they would have a hog killing, and that's when a lot of that stuff was available. But um, no, they did not regularly have access to that. Um, and so it was a special treat. And you'll see that if you look through the, the oral histories of enslaved people, you know, they note these things and they talk about how, um, you know, uh, how much it was, how uncommon it was. Uh, and things like white sugar and white flour um, that enslaved people did, get, did not get access to those things because those were considered prestige ingredients. So a lot of the stuff that we think of soul food today, that's really the celebration food of the South. And what I argue in my book is that soul food as we understand it is really the immigrant cuisine of the millions of black people who left the South during the great migration and settled in other places. And they did what any other immigrant group does. You get to the new place, you try to recreate home. And if you can do it with the exact same stuff, you do it, but a lot of times you can't, right? Um, because you're in a place where certain things won't grow or you, that stuff can't get to you by train or truck. And then you're, living with people you're not used to living with. Um, so you've got people from Asia or Central Europe or other places, and you start looking at what they eat and starting, um, you know, mimicking it or incorporating it into your diet. So soul food has a lot of overlap with Southern food, but I think it's something different. And for those who live in the South who are listening to this, you know, they're probably saying, well, we don't even really call it soul food that much. It's just home cooking or country cooking. Um, it's really outside of the South that, that soul food has more currency. Well, I was wondering, um, so you said that what we think of now is like basically the food based off the great migration from the South to to like the cities. And I can understand that because like when I think of like something like macaroni and cheese, it almost seems like it seems like a, a almost like a mixture of like some Italian type thing. Am I wrong about that or? No, you're absolutely right. So uh, this is how macaroni and cheese gets so black. Um, basically, uh, macaroni and cheese was a royalty dish in Europe going way, way back. Um, so Queen Elizabeth I was grubbing, had her royal cooks make macaroni and cheese. It was different than what we think of today, but it's been around for a long time. So you've got these wealthy Southerners who go to Europe, because remember, white people in the early Republic, they wanted to be like wealthy Europeans. 
And so they were often mimicking what they did. So they would go back and check out the scene and all that kind of stuff. So dudes like Thomas Jefferson and others get exposed to this dish called macaroni and cheese. It was called macaroni pudding back then. Uh, they bring it back to the U.S. They have their enslaved cooks make it. And then that's how it comes into the African-American uh, diet, because those cooks who had that knowledge would then make it for our special occasions, because there's no corollary to macaroni and cheese in West African food. Um, so that was something new. And then over time, it's something that we embraced so much so that when I was interviewing people for my soul food book, they were convinced that black people invented mac and cheese and white people stole it somehow. Um, when that's not exactly the case, but that that astonished me. I thought that was pretty funny. I heard that they I, were shipping they were shipping uh, mac, macaroni noodles in by by the pounds from Europe. Yep. Yeah, it was. Yeah, they had to import it because um, for whatever reason, uh, first of all, they didn't have the technology. So there was a specific technology to make macaroni, and the Italians had it on lockdown. So when Thomas Jefferson brings a macaroni maker to the United States. He's actually smuggling it in. Um, but then later uh, in the US, they could grow the wheat and they could make the macaroni. And for whatever reason, they just choose not to. They just choose to import it. But then when millions of Italians show up towards the end of the 19th century, all of a sudden you start seeing manu macaroni manufacturing skyrocket in the US. And so we, we cease to import it and we're just making it ourselves. Are there any other like uh, interesting dishes than like uh, that we consider soul food that has like a an origin story like that where people think it might be something that we just we we just invented, but it actually has like a a different path towards us? Um, yeah, there's a couple things like that. So um, you know, one thing is fried chicken, um, and in my work, I wanted to definitively prove that things like fried chicken and barbecue were African in origin because I wanted to cross my arms across my chest and say Wakanda forever after proving that. But um, I'm, I'm someone who's led by the facts. So uh, I want to talk about barbecue and fried chicken um, you know, in, in two separate instances. So with fried chicken, you know, um, it, it makes sense to think that Black people would have been familiar with fried chicken because there were fry, deep frying traditions in much of West Africa. Chickens arose, um, arrived in around 1000, the year 1000 AD, um, and were quickly embraced by Africans. In fact, supplanted a lot of the guinea fowl and other things that people were eating there. So you had chickens, you had the deep frying tradition. But when you go back and look at the way Africans ate food back then, and even now, they didn't eat fried chicken the way we understand it in the United States. Um, typically, when they get a chicken, they break it down into smaller pieces, but those pieces are usually quickly fried in some kind of shallow oil and then braised along with other vegetables and other things. So it's really like a twice cooked method. So it's more like a fricassee than the fried chicken. So what my research shows is that fried chicken probably came from Europe because I found uh, recipes from the 1700s um, of butchering a chicken, breaking it down, dipping it in a batter, and then frying it in oil, which is essentially what we get for American-style fried chicken. And again, like macaroni and cheese, enslaved cooks were forced to make this dish, and they make it so well that they become its signature cooks. Um, it's similar with barbecue. Barbecue, I argue, is Native American in foundation, but enslaved Africans and, and European colonizers bring their traditions and graft it onto what Native Americans were doing, and it puts us on the road to Southern barbecue. And again, if you go back through history and look at what the ways that Africans were um, smoking meat, 
they weren't necessarily doing it in the pit tradition that we think of with Southern pit barbecue, the way they smoked meat. And often this is the way they did small game bush meat, they call it or fish is it was, it was similar to the Europeans. They would build these basically smoke huts and hang their fish in the hut and smoke it that way. So you just don't see um, barbecue that way now. I'm sorry, back then. Um, and the barbecue they even do now is more like grilling on skewers um, and rather than, uh, you know, large cuts of meat cooked in a pit. Uh, so um, one, one other fun example I want to give is what I call red drink. And you all know what that is, any red colored drink. So it could be Kool-Aid, could be Hawaiian punch, could be strawberry soda, all that kind of stuff. Um, in my book, I write about how I think that those drinks are a nod to the uh, red drinks of West Africa, namely uh, hibiscus drinks, um, often called bisap, um, and also cola drinks. There's red, there are red cola nuts. And in the case of red cola nuts and bisap, when somebody would go to someone's house, these were offered as hospitality drinks. And both of those drinks cross the Atlantic during the Atlantic slave trade and take root in places like Jamaica, where if you go to Jamaica, um, you're familiar with that cuisine, it's called sorrel and it's a Christmas time drink, but essentially you're just taking the flower petals of the hibiscus plant and steeping them in water and sweetening to taste. Uh, same with cola nuts. And um, these things start spreading around the Americas. And so, well, how do you make Kool-Aid? Get some water, color it red with that powder and sweeten it to taste. So I think these things are a nod to West African drinks. All right, so I got I got two words for you, Adrian. Mm -hmm. Corn bread, corn bread. What y'all did? Boom. Oh, the fuck y'all do? Uh, we, we, we went on a, um, the a most killing. violent, yeah, man. violent killing spree all around the country. We've been killing people all this month, Ooh. all month, man. He was, if y'all was out and was reading the papers, you ain't heard about it. Claude and Ray, Claude and Ray, fuck it. You know, sometimes you got to do certain shit. It's just enough that people know cut you that, you know, I go where I need to go you to get it man. done. If you push my button, there's no telling what I may do. Stab yeah. you, Don't choke you, bite you. you. I mean, whatever it takes to make a motherfucker yeah, stop existing, I would do that. I wish this spoon was shot. I stab a nigga right now. I bit one motherfucker to death. You wanna fuck with us? Nah, you don't really wanna fuck with us. You know what? Press the wrong button, nigga pop. Hey, girl. You gonna eat your cornbread? Mm -mm. Oh, Trevor. Don't say that. You talking to me? Yeah, I think you're talking to you. Um, no, not, not at all. Um, I want you to have it. Uh, Willie, you mind passing this down to... Uh, hey, no, hi, Willie. Don't, don't pass your cornbread to him. That's your cornbread. Ray, I'm a grown man, okay? I'm not going to eat this cornbread. If he wants the cornbread, damn it. Have the cornbread. Now, if he wants some cornbread, let him go up to the front and get his own portion of cornbread. That's your cornbread. Fuck him. Hey, man, he going to eat his cornbread, all right? Fuck you. Ray, look, I don't, I don't need you to... to, to Take up for me. I'm all right. I'm a, I'm a grown man. I can handle it. If you that. let him have your cornbread, you're going to be ironing his drawers and clipping his toenails. Shit. <laughs> Maybe I ought to eat your cornbread. Oh, oh motherfucker, you can't have my cornbread. That's for damn sure. Because if you try to take my cornbread, part two of my killing spree going to begin up in here on your ass right now. If you think about my cornbread, they get the taste out your mouth. That's for damn sure. Now, fuck him. Fuck that. Because I'm from New York City, goddammit. Nobody take no cornbread from me. And that go for you and any other you motherfucking farmers want to try some shit. You fuck around with me, it's going to be consequences and repercussions. You, you need, everybody need cornbread. We know historically that 
It's a movie that Negroes all, we, we all know, we all know this. It's a true movie. It's called Life. It's called Life. Ray Gibson fought Goldmouth for his cornbread. Mm-hmm. And we all know that every soul food Sunday. <laughs> yeah, you right. You go to war for some cornbread. But I have heard that cornbread's origins are not West African. That cornbread's origins may be indigenous to the Americas, especially North America. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, one thing I left out when I was talking about the food story is that on these plantations, regardless of where you were, the slaveholder controlled the amounts of food that enslaved people got. So once a week, on average, you would get five pounds of some starch. It was usually cornmeal, but some people got sweet potatoes. Uh, some people got rice, just depending on where you were in the South. Uh, you got a couple of pounds of salted, dried, or smoked meat and a jug of molasses. And so that's why you had to garden, fish, hunt, forage, and do all these other things to supplement your diet. So um, maize, corn, known as maize, because corn is actually the generic English term for wheat and grains and other things like that. So maize is from Central uh, America um, and spreads throughout the Americas. And certainly the indigenous people in Northern America were using it. So the indigenous people were the ones that taught the colonizing whites uh, and, and later the enslaved Africans how to make these things. And so, yeah, the earliest cornbreads were simply kind of what we would call hot water cornbread today. So it was simply the cornmeal with the, something that was wet enough to moisten it and hold it together. And then it was fried in a shallow grease. And another early cornbread was called ash cake. Again, something that would get moistened the cornmeal to form it into like a cake. And then you would cook it in um, the slow embers of the fire. And then over time, as cooking equipment um, improved and people got access to that, then you would get the cornbreads that are more familiar uh, today where you're throwing in the eggs, the milk and all that other stuff. So yeah, that it's all um, that's all Native American and its foundation. And then later people build on those things to create other forms of cornbread. Now, West Africans were certainly used to breads, but the breads that they made were made with like sorghum and millet and other grains. Like they just didn't have corn at that time. Now, corn would eventually be introduced into West Africa. And then by the 1700s, people are growing corn on the regular. So the, Af- the enslaved Africans that come later in the slave trade would be more familiar with corn, but the early African-Americans um, were not. Um, we were talking about hush puppies the other day and they were saying that the enslaved um, people use them to hush the dogs. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, so that's the, that's the story. And there's, you know, with, the, with these stories, there's always some different type of version. But the idea is that you got a group of people out doing something and they're by a river, of course. Uh, and as they're finishing up their work product, um, one of the, they, they start frying up some fish that they caught from that river and they coat it with cornmeal, which was the way they do it. You know, you get your cornmeal and skin it and dust it in cornmeal and, and deep fry it. And uh, the dog smelled all that great fish cooking and started barking and somebody decided, well, let me just moisten up some of this corn ball, uh, cornbread, form it into a ball, cornmeal, sorry, form it in a ball and fry it and then take it out and feed it to the dogs to hush the puppies. So that's, that's, that's cool. the, Thank that's you. the generic version of the story. I've yeah. never heard that. One. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so, it's so perfect that it's, it's definitely fake, but you never know. But is it now, was that uh, when, was it when the when the lie becomes fixed uh, when the fiction becomes the truth? Like print the fiction. 
something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just hard to sort this out because so many people claim that story and they do a riff on it that I think it's interesting. Now, in terms of the food story, if you, I don't know if you've ever had akara, which is um, kind of like a rice fritter from West Africa, um, when you when you eat those, when you open up that ball, that fritter, it's very similar in look to a hush puppy. So uh, my thought, okay. Is, yeah, I'm thinking that hush puppies were just a substitute version of akara. Um, and I'm sorry, I said rice. I mean, not rice, black IP fritters. I'm sorry, because it's a black IP fritter. You soak the black IPs and you remove that outer skin so it, it doesn't have darkness to it. And it's it's light in color. And I'm seriously, if you look at those two things, they look very similar. Okay, so, I mean, I think earlier in the show, you talked a little bit about barbecue. Um, Usually, uh, when it comes to like a, when it comes to American barbecue, what I, the stories I've heard is that you know enslaved enslaved people in America, we've been the best barbecues. Like we've been the pitmasters since we got here. Um, can you kind of kind of get? I know you've gotten to the origins of barbecue, but where did that kind of? Uh, in, I mean, we, I think we are the best cooks in general, anyway, because we, we already know <laughs> we, we know we know we, we can cook anything. We can cook anything. Like that's what. That's what black that's what black folks do in America. But I mean, as far as like American barbecue, like can you kind of tell the black American contribution to American barbecue? Can you kind of get into the origins and kind of break that down as well? Yeah. So even though I think that it's Native American in origin, um, certainly after colonizing whites from Europe and enslaved Africans arrive, there, there's a collaboration that occurs where they build on what Native Americans were doing and it and it becomes Southern pit barbecue, which means digging a trench couple feet deep, few feet wide, several feet long, um, filling that up with hardwood burning coals, solid, setting those on fire, letting them burn down, then getting your animals, not always pigs. You could have sheep, goats, a possum, you know, small game. If they did cows, they quartered them because cows are so big. Um, and then they would butter, you know, pro kill, the, kill those animals, process them, and then butterfly them. And um, with that butterflying, they would stick, after that, they would stick poles in the side. And it was two people's jobs to periodically flip that carcass over those coals. Somebody else's job was to swab it with um, a vinegar and red pepper sauce. That's how you kept it moist. And then another person's job was to maintain a separate fire and look for hot spots um, in the fire. Uh, then you had a whole bunch of people that had to make the side dishes. Another, uh, somebody else had to, um, provide the entertainment, somebody else had to serve. So um, barbecue was labor intensive. And we know in this country, if you're gonna make a bunch of people do something really difficult and not pay them, that fell upon black people. And so uh, slavery, barbecue and blackness all gets tied together by the time we get to the late 18th century. And so barbecue, uh, so African-Americans are recognized as um, barbecues go-to cooks. Um, there are newspaper articles throughout the 1800s saying, oh, some Negro man did this or whatever. In fact, it was so commonplace that if a white person did it, people were skeptical. Uh, and it was really only until the end of the 1800s that you saw more and more white men getting involved in barbecue. So um, where, because of this tie between blackness, slavery, and barbecue, as slavery sp spread, Southern barbecue soon followed. And so it was really enslaved African-Americans who were introducing barbecue in Kentucky, in Western Tennessee, in East Texas, you know, all of these places that we recognize now as barbecue places. That was because Black folks showed up with that skill. 
then after emancipation, you had um, all these African-Americans with a very marketable and desired skill who were essentially hired as freelancers to go all around the country to do barbecue. And uh, again, it was only until the late 1800s that white men got into barbecue. But even that, the white men that got all the praise heaped upon them for barbecues relied on an all black cooking uh, staff. So they relied on black neighbor, yet they got the, all the praise, black labor, although they got all the praise. Um, so fast forward to the 1990s, this all starts to change because um, there's more, in, uh, there's more interest in regional food traditions in the United States and barbecue was one of them. And so these foodies who are interested in all these American regional traditions started asking two questions. What's barbecue and where do I get the good stuff? And the media at that time that was catering to this group, instead of pre uh, presenting a diverse world of barbecue, they basically started just showing white dudes as the experts in barbecue. So much so that by the time you get to the 2010s, most of the barbecue people that are known nationally, internationally are all white dudes. Uh, even though you've got these brothers and sisters who've been doing their thing for decades. Well, they even culturally appropriated our cooking. My bad, Mud. Go. that's crazy. Go ahead, Mud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so one of the reasons why I wrote Black Smoke, my book on um, African-Americans in the United States of barbecue is to start to change the narrative and just say, look, if you're going to talk about barbecue in the United States, you have to include black people. Because even though I argue now, not everybody agrees, right? There's, there are others who believe that it's African in origin. I just haven't found proof of that. But, you know, see if somebody finds it, I'm happy to change my um, opinion on that. But, um, you know, is to say, even though it's Native American origin, African-Americans were essential to its shaping, its, you know, its development, and then it spread. Black people were the most effective ambassadors for barbecue in the late 1800s, no doubt about it. I mean, they were getting hired to come to places like Denver, Seattle, uh, you know, all these places just to do uh, Southern barbecue. Hey, Mud, go ahead, Gus. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, it, this might be kind of a strange question, but um, I know you talked about like uh, uh, us being the chefs for the White House and, and we're cooking for these slave owners. Was there ever like a concern that we would be poisoning these people? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, oh, we did. Oh, we oh, did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> If you go back through newspaper articles, uh, there were poisonings left and right. Um, and so it, it was so remarkable that even with that threat, that so many white people still insisted that black people make their food. Uh, but that was a constant worry of, of slaveholders. Um, and there were a lot of attempts and some of them were successful. You know, so the thing was, you know, as an enslaved person, if, you, you, if you're going to do that, you got to make sure it works. Otherwise, you're going to you know, get whipped, probably to death. And so somebody was going to die one way or the other. Um, and so, yeah, there was a lot of poisonings. And you, and, and again, when you look at the, um, when you look at newspapers and oral histories, you, you, you see how much resistance was offered um, and, and people, uh, you know, trying to poison, uh, other acts of sabotage, all kinds of things were happening. I feel like that's a big thing that's very much overlooked in our history is the fact that like we fought back like we were setting stuff on fire we did not play like plenty of people died trying to get free nobody people weren't waiting right yeah we were fighting in all kinds of ways and people were strategizing right how they do that so you know sabotaging farm equipment so it couldn't work you know all the all this all these ways were happening so yeah but go ahead let's get back on, i'm let's get back on topic 
da, 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 da. No, that's part of it, right? So yeah, this resistance shows up in food and also the act of growing our own food, which that's, that's something I didn't know. A lot of enslaved people were given patches of land to grow whatever they wanted. Um, and so the act of growing their own food, um, some, sometimes if they were in the climate that was suitable, they were growing foods from Africa. Um, you know, that was an act of resistance as well. In fact, there were a little, there were some times when the um, slaveholders were jealous of the green thumb that these um, enslaved African Americans had in growing their own food. Um, and in, some, in, in a lot of cases, and I think this is going to be part of my next book, these enslaved people that were so good at growing food were allowed to go to town and sell it. And we've got instances of people buying their freedom or buying things for their slave cabin or, um, you know, in addition, buying the freedom of their loved ones, you know, trying to keep their family united. Um, so yeah, some really interesting yeah. stuff. I'm so glad that you said that because, you know, people always like to be, but black people own slaves. But when you really, sorry, is it super loud? But when you really look at it, a lot of times these were their family members that they were purchasing. They yep. were literally like, you know, trying to keep their family members from being sold off. So instead of their masters selling them, they would buy them or they would get free and they would buy them. So yeah, people mm -hmm. don't understand that like, that's a whole extra piece of this. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, this is great information. Well, hey, my bad, but you got something like well, I, I just wanted to kind of get into the whole um, thing about rice. Um, I think, you know, we, we definitely, we can't, we can't talk about soul food and not talk about, you know, rice and the fact that, um, you know, it was such a, we were, it was basically a skill set that they were looking for when they were looking for slaves when they went to Africa, because, you know, we knew how to do something essentially that they didn't know how to do. And we already had that skill set uh, well into us. So can we kind of get into that? Yeah, so, you know, um, I didn't know that there was an indigenous rice uh, in West Africa, because when you hear about rice, you know, I don't know about you, but I always automatically go to Asia, right? Because that's where we, what we hear about. But there was a type of rice. And so we now know that enslaved Africans from Senegambia, um, even all the way down to Sierra Leone, because there was rice cultivation going down there, were brought to places like the Carolinas, Virginia, uh, and Louisiana to grow rice. And uh, rice was very lucrative. So I don't know if you've ever heard the term Carolina gold. Well, that term was not because of the color of the rice. That was just because of how valuable it was. Um, and so, um, yeah, rice cultivation was huge. And enslaved Africans were brought here for other things like um, cattle raising. You know, in the highlands of West Africa, there was there was cattle raising going on. And, and West African, um, there's a, and there's an interesting theories about them as the early cowboys uh, in the uh, in the U.S. But yeah, they were brought here too. So we we see this very calculated theft of African talent and labor from West Africa brought here under duress and coerced to make other people rich. And so that, that's, a, that's a theme we see um, regularly uh, through slavery. Um, and rice is probably the most prominent example, um, but yeah, definitely the case. And um, I, was, I was reading something about how they even backed uh, a, a former currency based on rice because it was so valuable um, in oh. early America. 
Okay, you got me on that one. I didn't know about that. Yeah, I think they did it with rice and then they did it with tobacco. Okay. And then eventually they, they went on to the gold standard or, you know, started using gold and silver mm-hmm. um, to back the currency. But, you know, that's a different di- discussion. <laughs> no, that's interesting. I think for, thanks for planting that seed. I'm going to have to look into that. Just to add on to that, all of our heirloom seeds that we've cultivated, like generationally, they're in high demand from um, those GMO seed companies. They're like literally going to our farms and stuff down south asking owners of them for particular seeds. Oh, wow. Is it your sense that these owners are giving it up? Yes, like um, Anson Mills. Mm-hmm. he's one of them he's i think they're the biggest one actually mm. huh okay what about farmland like do you, have you looked into any of this this type of stuff because i've been uh doing some research recently about how you know um essentially we've lost so much farmland from um you know the past century or so um we i think at a certain point by 1920, we had like 14% of all the farmland in the country. And now it's like less than 1%. And do you think that's like affecting the, like our contribution to, um, you know, just the cuisine of America? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I just saw, I, I can't remember the raw totals, but yeah, you're, what you described is pretty much lines up with what I saw. And I, I think I saw this at the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. Which, if y'all haven't been there, you got you got to go. Um, but uh, yeah, no, this, the loss of land is staggering, and it's it's definitely impacted um, black wealth in a couple ways. One, you know, if you were good enough at, at farming, you could be self sufficient. Um, and two, um, the a lot of wealth is based on land possession, uh, even though it was stolen from the indigenous people, um, Solon. Uh, but yeah, a lot of wealth is generated from owning land in this country. And so we know that a lot of black folks have been swindled out of their land um, and, and um, forced to be in sharecropping or tenant farmer situations where you could never really get ahead. It could never build wealth. And so it was a way to keep people in a subservient status in our society. And so um, I, I really weep at the loss of property. And I'm gone through that with my own family um you know like i i've had relatives that were just in a serious financial condition and then rather than reaching out to see what the other family could do they just quick claimed uh you know property so somebody got that on the cheap and flipped it around and made a ton of money on that you know and that's that stuff that could have stayed in our family so i i've experienced that uh personally not not immediately but just in my family so yeah that's another part of the story um just the loss of land and how that's impacted our collective wealth. I know what we need to talk about. So what about biscuits? <laughs> now, what, what, what y'all got? <laughs> I mean, I don't know, Jim. I mean, all we have are um, these and those. And that! Okay? <laughs> don't lie for toasting uh, Yeah, all right. Wait a minute. The nose. Wait a minute. Somebody living foul. Somebody living. Get over there. Get over there. 
Tommy, Tommy takes one of them. Then my mama biscuit. Then my mama biscuit. Yes. Yes, Gina. No. Y'all my Gina. mama biscuit. That's right, you cheater. Y'all ain't do nothing but snap them raggedy ass peas. Let's <laughs> get to the oranges and biscuits. Let's hear about let's hear about the biscuits. Part of the keto. Let's all right, let's hear what you gotta say, though. Yeah, so biscuits were not something African in origin. So this was definitely something we've embraced from European food traditions. Um, but biscuits go back a while um, in, in Western um, culture, um, mainly in like British cooking. And um, some of the biscuits, like they weren't fluffy. Um, they were more um, almost cracker-like. Like, I, have you ever had a beaten biscuit? Do you know what that is? No. Yeah, they're no. dry. Yeah, yeah. They were dry. Yeah. yeah. So biscuits were more like that. So I think the, the Southern innovation is to add buttermilk and all these other things to make a fluffier biscuit. Um, I, I love biscuits. And there's a reason why I try not to have them regularly, because I would be a, a, an even bigger brother if I was doing that. But uh, yeah, no, I love me some biscuits. <laughs> and my, my, don't yeah. eat too many biscuits, man. <laughs> I know, I know, right? Um, <laughs> I, I got I got clowned on social media because uh, since I live in Colorado, I don't get access to it. But um, I finally had a Bojangles biscuit, which I thought was really good. But people have been on me. They're like, how come you didn't get the Bowberry? So I guess I got to try that at some point. Um, but my earliest one of my earliest and best memories of biscuits is spending summers in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And my grandmother made great baking powder biscuits. And then my, I had an aunt who made an awesome plum jelly. So I would pair those bliss, those biscuits, those baking powder biscuits with that plum jelly. Man, I was good eating. And I oh. did butter them while they were hot. I buttered them while they were hot. Oh yeah. Not my, the butter my, biscuits. My, <laughs> my grandmother, my grandmother in Arkansas makes jellies and uh pickles. So yes, I understand. Yeah. And my uncle makes pear preserves and they're amazing, especially with a little wow. bit of blue cheese and the right type of bread. Oh my god. Wow. Well, uh, since we're talking about um, you know jellies and stuff, how how does how does uh, dessert develop in our our cuisine? Yeah, so this is another kind of European um, thing because in West Africa, you know, composed desserts—that's just not the way they eat. That's not the meal pattern. Um, if, if I guess the closest thing we could think of dessert is just having some fruit. Um, so this is definitely a European thing. So um, during enslavement, during the week, the, the first desserts were roasted sweet potatoes um, because you could just put those in the dying embers of a fire and cook them very slowly. And if you've ever had a roasted sweet potato like that, if it's really got a really high sugar content, you know, you get that kind of sugar kind of glazing and oozing out of the sweet potato. And another thing was to take a biscuit um, that was left over and um, stick their thumb in it to create a hole and then they would pour molasses in there. So that was a sweet dessert. So that was like during the week, but then on the weekends, that's when you could do the fancy stuff. So the cakes, um, pies, uh, things like that. That's when that started showing up in our diet. And again, this was like a nod to what Europeans were doing uh, then putting our own spin on it. Because a lot of the soul food desserts that we think of, um, they're usually riffs off of high-end British desserts. So for instance, the sweet potato pie, it's the same method in spicing as the carrot pie, which is something that um, Brits ate in the 1600s. And it makes sense, right? You're just swapping one sweet orange root for another. Um, no, it don't. Yeah, it makes sense to make a yeah. cut. To take <laughs> a cut. <laughs> really? you, know, you know how the white folks is, but go, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carrot pie. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, no, carrot is the sweetest. I think it's actually the sweetest vegetable. Yeah, um, it's one of them. Yeah. And so the I mean, Nation of Islam has a recipe for it. They call it carrot fluff. It's kind of yeah. like a mashed sweet potato type thing. Right. That's because, different. Because, you know, they don't like the sweet potato. That They don't like potatoes, so. Mm-hmm. But Morgan, that's different because Black folk made that pie. It's not the same as carrot pie. See, we, made, we call it <laughs> carrot fluff. That's different. That's different. I know it tastes way better than carrot pie. Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> uh, banana pudding, right? Um, that's a riff off an old British dessert. So a banana pudding is a riff off a British dessert called a trifle. And a trifle was some kind of bread component, you know, cake or whatever, with the cream component. So the, ban- ban- the difference with the banana pudding is the bread component is those vanilla wafer cookies. And you still have the custard as kind of the cream component with a meringue. And then you added the bananas. Um, and then pound cake, that's a hardcore British dessert, but you know, that's a black folks dessert staple. Um, so you see, you see these high-end British desserts um, repurposed in black cuisine. What about the seven up cake? Yeah, so to me, um, I think of seven up cake as a version of a pound cake. And I think seven up cakes uh, came on the scene because of sugar rationing. And, um, you know, if you, did, if you just couldn't get access to sugar, it made a lot of sense to use like a 7-Up or a Coca-Cola or whatever to get your sugar content. I love 7-Up cakes. I love them. Me too. They're my favorite. Yeah. I, I, um, I don't find them very often. Like the ones in the store, they're not as good to me. I like the ones that I get in somebody's house or at a restaurant. Yeah, you got to make those cakes with love. Yeah, yeah. Do you like Coca-Cola cake? Have you ever had a Coca-Cola cake? I haven't. Okay. Hey, they're okay. They're all right. But 7-Up cakes, those are awesome. What about barbecue sauce in America? Yeah. So one of, this is my biggest, one of my biggest gripes with what's going on in barbecue now. So now that white dudes have taken over barbecue, they're putting out nonsense that like uh, barbecue should be unsauced. You know, like you should, you should taste the meat. It should only be salt and pepper. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say most black folks would say, says who? Um, because I think in our community, barbecue sauce is a calling card. There's a there's a kind of an understanding that you know how to cook the meat. And so it's really the sauce that stands you out. Um, so that that just bothers me. So when I talk about barbecue in front of especially white audiences, I'm telling you, look, there's more than one way to have barbecue. And um, sauce is a calling card. And, um, you know, it shows off the artistry of the cook, I think. But I I love sauce. And, you know, um, there were a lot of barbecue restaurants, African-American barbecue restaurants, that they used to just sell the sauce and white bread uh, to people that didn't have a lot of money. And you would just walk into that place and, you know, you just grub on that white bread soaked with sauce. And that was your meal. That's interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, I remember the struggle sandwiches. Struggle sandwiches? That's what you call them? Oh, yeah. You take, um, let me see. All right, so it depends on what time of day you're going for, right? So, like, if ain't nothing, if ain't nothing in the house but a little loaf of bread, then you're going you're gonna to either, like, sweeten it up, throw you a little cinnamon and some butter on that. Now, depending on where you're at in the uh, socioeconomic situation, that might go in the microwave, that might go in the oven. Yes. <laughs> yes, I did that many a time. May I help you, sir? 
How much for an order of ribs? Uh, two fifty. Two fifty. How many ribs do I get with that? Uh, about five. Five. So I guess that's about fifty cents a rib, huh? Yeah, about. Okay, let me get one. Right on. One order. One order of ribs. No, 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 no. One rib. One rib. I sure am hungry. Uh, make that one rib to go. One rib? One rib. What else? You got any soda? One dollar. Oh, come on now. Look out for a brother, man. Come on. Hey, check this out. Why don't you let me get a sip for 15 cents? My cups cost more than 15 cents. All right, fuck the cup. Pour it in my hand for a dime. Yeah, but like later on in the day, you might uh you might get a little creative with whatever sauces is in the cabinet. That's your struggle sandwich for the day. Got it. I love it. But hey, Adrian, so you on the show? So or here at Reset Race, we we try to uh kind of uh kind of highlight you know the distinguishedness. Uh, we try to embrace our own ethnicity as Black Americans. You know, we understand that we have African influences definitely. We understand it's European influences. We know where they come from. We know where the Native American influences come from because that's what we they brought us to. We understand. We understand that, you know, we we, we try to we're trying to establish ourselves as our own ethnic group. It's our own people. Is it's a lot of shame in our in our culture. Like so, as far as the way that we speak, the way you know, it's a lot of it, particularly with our food. Uh, they like to call our food slave food, and people act like you know have culture that, that plays into the whole thing that African Americans don't have any culture. So. You know, in order to do that, your music is everybody's. It doesn't belong to you. The, the way that you speak is bad English. That's not like a distinct way that you speak. The way that you cook food is just slave food. But particularly with food, like I, I don't, I notice. I, I mean, can you kind of, you know, elaborate on that? Yeah, you know, I think um, I think a large part of the story is that we were forced to cook for other people. Um, so I think that's that brings a, a sense of shame about being in the culinary professions. I, I remember the shade that I got just for telling people I was going to write a book about our food. I mean, people were just like, why would you do that? Um, why would you celebrate that? Uh, and then I think a lot of uh, the narrative comes from this very specific thing called the hog killing that only happened one time during the year when um, a bunch of people um, would get together, slaughter a bunch of hogs. And the idea was to Kill, kill and process, uh, kill enough animals and process enough meat that you could smoke it, dry it, salt it, pickle it, or whatever you're going to do and have enough meat to make it through the winter until you got to the next year. And so in those hog killings, a lot of times what would happen is um, there were prestigious parts of the pig. That's why they call it high on the hog because the hams and the shoulders were the prestigious cuts. Um, and those were processed and usually um, favored by the slaveholder and then enslaved people got everything else. Now, um, the thing that's kind of messed up about that narrative is that there are plenty of accounts of white people eating the same stuff, all that other stuff. Um, but there's this idea that all of that stuff just went to black people. So this is the stuff that white people didn't want. And so that story, that narrative has tainted all of the cuisine. And people are saying, oh, this is all of that stuff is stuff that white people didn't want. But in my experience, um, these food traditions are more about place and class rather than race. For the most part, people in the same economic, socioeconomic class, regardless of their race, they're eating the same food. Now they're not eating them together because of the racist, you know, doctrines of the 
of segregation, Jim Crow in the South, but they were eating the same food. Um, you, you talk to poor whites in the South, man, they'll, they'll tell you about chitlins. Um, I was just talking to, you know, I was at this event in Colorado just a couple of days ago in Colorado Springs. And I was talking to this white woman and she was telling me how much she loved chitlins. I'm like, what? And she's like, oh yeah, yeah, we eat chitlins. And so um, the, the, the story has been selectively told and um, it's just it's just gotten out of whack. And I think the other thing is there's been a steady drumbeat of soul food as being unhealthy in that the cuisine needs a warning label. You know, if you eat this stuff, you're gonna get cancer, heart attack, diabetes. Um, and what I tell people is, okay, you're not looking at the whole story. First of all, you're really gonna tell me that Tex-Mex is healthier than soul food? No. You look at the elements of soul food, right? Um, darkly, what are nutritionists telling us to eat? Dark leafy greens, sweet potatoes, more fish, okra, hibiscus. These are all the building blocks of soul food. So what I tell people is really about moderation and understanding that we're eating this food out of the context because what people are gravitating to is the celebration food aspect of the cuisine. And I don't care what cuisine it is. If you eat the celebration food of it on, a, on the regular, it's not going to be good for your body. And then the other thing is, yeah. And then the other thing is, I think we should step back and just take a holistic view. You don't think that being continually exposed to systematic racism and individual racism doesn't have an effect on your health. Um, the trauma that has been visited upon us for centuries, that doesn't show up in your health. Um, so this idea that soul food is killing us kills me. And then the, I'll just say this last thing. Um, I think soul food gets a bad rap because all these people who point to like people dying from soul food, I think if you actually look at what they ate, I think they're loading up on fast food and convenience food. I don't think they're eating soul food a lot. So I think, uh, I think soul food's taking the blame for all this other stuff and it's just messed up. Also, I'm, I'm gonna have to look up the article, but there was just an article talking about how black American men die of more, have more heart, or have more heart disease and more issues like that than non-black American men or people who descend from slaves. So exactly, you're making a good point. Yeah. And, and, and so we just need more comprehensive and nuanced thinking about this stuff. And it just pains me because white people write that crap and so do black people. And I'm like, dang, man, can't you guys just like take it a little bit deeper? It's and that it soul about... food propaganda movie. Yeah, right, right. Um, Big Rubber Lego. Big Rubber had too many college degrees. So... Oh, Lord. Like, it, it's, it's, come on. I'm, I'm, now I'm hungry now, thinking about the spread on soul food, but my bad, I'll let y'all go. go. <laughs> that was an impressive <laughs> spread, let me just tell you. I wish I was helping out on that set. They forget that you don't have to put butter, you don't have to put hog milk, you can mix it up and make it healthy. So when they say that, it's like, <laughs> I see what your level of thinking in the culinary scene is. Yeah, you know, a cucumber from a zucchini. Like, I hate <laughs> that. I really, you know, it, it's annoying when they they say that and that's that's to me that's one of the exciting things that's going on in the culinary movement right now in terms of black folks is i think some of the most exciting stuff is in the vegan and vegetarian space and um you know i've had next level greens that didn't have one ounce of meat in them because if you know how to season you know you don't you don't need meat to get flavor um it's just a lot of people don't know how to season So I have some questions about some uh, rumors I've heard regarding American barbecue. Um, so I, I've heard that like uh, the hamburger is like um, 
it comes out of a tradition of cannibalism. <laughs> I I have not heard that. Uh, the most plausible thing that I've heard is that the hamburger is essentially a descendant of the Hamburg steak. And so it's immigrant food that shows up late 1800s, early 1900s. So basically turn of the 20th century, um, just like the hot dog, which was the Wienerwurst or the Frankfurter. Um, these are, this is immigrant stuff that comes here and gets, um, gets altered a little bit and then becomes an American thing. So I, I've never heard the cannibal connection. Yeah, I've heard it like comes out of lynchings when they were like, okay, well, we're not just gonna, um, we're not just gonna hang somebody, we're gonna eat them. What? Yeah. Okay. I, I, I have never, ever heard that. You don't need the references on that one, Joey. I got you. I, I don't know. What's I believe you, but you know, we I like to pull up. Is, is that in that, is that in that flesh book? What's the name of that book? The Delectable Negro. Is it in, is it in Delectable Negro? So you're basically uh, trying to ask them if they was eating Negroes or they they grounded Negroes on and make his hamburgers. <laughs> I've heard these things, but I've never looked into them personally. So now, I figured I'd ask an expert. Yeah, um, now I will say this. If you go back and look at some of the stuff that was done to lynch Black people, I mean, it was sick stuff. They didn't eat it, but man, they were dismembering and they would uh, take artifacts. So they would just take pieces of the corpse. And then there would sometimes, in some instances, the store, like stores in that community would have displays of the lynch person you know, like body parts and they would, you know, it was like a proud memento. So there was definitely some sick stuff happening. Uh, I just hadn't heard that they were eating folks. Yeah, this is something my grandma used to say about like, you know, you got to watch what you eat, you know, especially when you go over to them people's houses or whatever, because <laughs> might end up with some mystery meat. You so funny. <laughs> mm, I don't know. Your chili is good, Cartman, but I think mine is better. Try it. All right. This is great. It's a special recipe. Ah, this is really good, Scott. I'm glad you like it so much, because now that you're almost finished, I have something to tell you. What? You mean about how you put pubes in your chili? What? Yes, I'm afraid this isn't your chili, Scott. I switched it with chefs. It's delicious, chef. I hadn't planned on that. What I did plan on, however, was that my friend Stan and Kyle would betray me and warn you that the chili con carnival was a trap. I assumed that they would tell you that I had trained Dinkins' pony to bite off your wiener. What they didn't tell you was that Dinkins is a crazy redneck who shoots trespassers on sight. Knowing that you would go and try to do something to the pony, I warned Mr. Dinkins that violent pony killers were in the area. I also knew that you wouldn't go yourself for fear of having your wiener bitten off. You would most likely send your parents. And I'm afraid that when Mr. Dinkins spotted them on his property, he shot and killed both your parents. <laughs> Well, they was trespassing, and I was protecting myself. I, I have my rights. My mom and dad are dead? I came just in time to see Mr. Dinkins giving his report to Officer Barbrady. And, of course, to steal the bodies. After a night with the hacksaw, I was all ready to put on my chili gun carnival so that I could tell you personally about your parents' demise. And, of course, feed you your chili. Do you like it? Do you like it, Scott? I call it Mr. and Mrs. Kennerman Chili. I made you eat your parents. You're so funny. Have, have any of y'all ever seen um, fried green tomatoes? 
secret yes. in sauce. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Soily green is people. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. I've never heard that. So what about potato salad? Yeah, so potato salad, that comes from the Germans. Um, you know, that's not something that's African. Um, and there were a lot of Germans that immigrated to the South. Um, so a, a good mix of the white people in the South were Germans. And it's it's really interesting how um, their foods became to def- came to define Southern food, you know, um, the potato salad, coleslaw. Um, that's another German thing. Um, you know, but it's something that, again, enslaved Africans and enslaved African-Americans learned how to cook, were forced to cook, but liked it enough to embrace it and became part of our food traditions. And to me, potato salad has reached that elevated status in soul food. I mean, there's a lot to love about soul food, but there are certain foods that reach a status. And, you know, uh, I think it's safe to say for most families, you need to um, have references um, and other stuff before you're allowed to make the potato salad. That's a fact. You know, made that, the potato salad. True. Listen, yeah. I talked about my my grandfather's daughter so bad. She had nerd put like these weird jalapenos, and it was the weirdest potato salad I've ever eaten. I was talking about her so bad. I was like, she should have kept this at her house. I don't know why she brought this here. Please <laughs> tell me you did not have raisins though. Just as long as it didn't have raisins. <laughs> yeah, it didn't have raisins, but. That jalapeno. weird little jalapeno thing she was doing with it wasn't it neither. Okay. You should have called the FBI. That, uh-uh. That, they attempted to poison you. <laughs> Jalapenos and potato salad? Oh, Jesus. But anyway, though, like, as, as you said, though, you said German Germany had a, a lot of influence on our food. So, like, even today, right, if you go to certain parts of the Carolinas when it comes to fried chicken, and if, you, if you're kind of trying to uh, marinate fried chicken, you might see an old school Negro in the spot. One of them, one of people, one of people got. To, you might see an old school Negro putting mustard in the bag to to to, to uh to marinate the chicken. Oh, and, and yep. on top of barbecue, barbecue as well. Barbecue, you might see that certain rubs that they do in certain parts of the Carolinas but have mustard in it. Yep. And potato salad. That's why yep. it's yellow. Somebody's like, that's a little secret. A little mustard. In it. So you know, do you talk a little bit about that or? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the in, in in North Carolina, you've got two styles, right? You've got the Eastern whole hog chopped tradition, and then you've got the Western North Carolina or Lexington style, which is pork shoulders. Um, that doesn't show up. Pork, the pork shoulder thing doesn't show up until the 1910s and 20s when you're starting to get more German immigrants arriving in that area. Um, and then, you know, for all the people who are cooks, what do we know? It's a lot easier to cook something when you break it down into smaller cuts, right, than cooking it whole. So one of the dramatic changes that has happened in barbecue over the 20th century is this um, the shift from uh, rural barbecue to urban barbecue, and then the shift from uh, whole animal cooking to cooking just cuts of meat, like spare ribs, shoulders, brisket. Um, and so it involves an, a, a different skill set. So, you know, it was this defining a way, it was barbecue was defined away from the African-American wheelhouse. Um, another example of this is the the Central Europeans, like Germans, that show up in Central Texas. So they weren't cooking directly over coals as African Americans had done for centuries. They were they introduced something called indirect smoking, low and slow. So instead of cooking right over that heat source, you put it on the side and just put salt and pepper and da da da. 
somehow they got away with calling that redefining that and calling that barbecue and the bell has already been rung. You can't unring it now. So, um, but that technically is not barbecue um, the way it was understood for a couple of centuries, but today nobody would argue that it's not barbecue. So we see, we, we see this constant expansion of what barbecue is. We see a, a, a you know, a, attempts to redefine it away from the African-American barbecue aesthetic. It's about the, the love, it. your heart, and experience for sure barbecue for sure. in two ways it's signs and heart mm. white folks use sign black folks use heart awesome, <laughs> awesome. Man, that's pretty that's much crazy. the way it is in america so i think i think i think that my question would be is that you know like like you said like i mean the question i wanted to ask a little earlier but you know we see all these influences around through west africa central africa uh europe europe western europe mostly uh, some parts of Eastern Europe, indigenous culture. But what what makes our food uniquely ours? Like what makes what makes our food distinguished from other groups of people's food? And you know, I just want to you know what what makes it our food? Because you know, somebody from another somebody from the continent might say like, oh no, that's that's Nigerian. I might be cooking red rice, like that's jollof. I'm like, it's not jollof. It's red rice. <laughs> it's red rice. Like it's, the seasonings are different. But no, it's jollof. It's not jollof. Like, but it's tomatoes and rice. Well, they cook tomatoes and rice a thousand miles up the coast, up and down to West Africa. Like, they yeah. all cook types of different. This is red rice. Or as you see, if you see my Twitter handle, I say that jollof is not jambalaya. Yeah, no yeah, yeah. Jambalaya is our food. Right. It has Spanish influences. It has uh, French influences. It has West African influence. But it's uniquely to Black Americans. So. What makes our food like you know like what makes that food ours though? you know like what it makes it ours? yeah 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 so um you know it's interesting so you start to see these these signatures you see these culinary signatures emerging after african-american culture emerges right because it doesn't emerge until the second generation because there has to be um you know there's a mixture of culture and stuff like that because most people were thought of themselves as african first and then they thought of themselves as african-american um, so you see these culinary signatures. So um, in, in Southern food, especially um, the use of red pepper, um, like more intensely seasoned, um, the use of just like um, unusual cuts of meat. And this reflects kind of our status in society, often being in a poverty status. Um, and, and, then, and then I think a lot of it is context, like you explained, right? It's just the coming together of all these different things and black cooks are the ones that are shepherding this process and something new emerges and it's something we love so um it's it's highly localized and very case by case um in in terms of that because sometimes you have traditions that emerge that are truly shared like you have poor whites eating the same stuff or you know certain other groups of people eating them but you know i i would say something that like some recent examples of things that are ours is I would say like um, Nashville hot chicken, you know, the idea that there would be this insanely spicy fried chicken, you know, that's ours. Uh, soul rolls, which are soul food filled egg rolls. I think that's us um, combining fried fish and spaghetti, um, you know, things like that. I think there's a lot of examples um, of where we um, put our mark of ingenuity on something. But again, I think it really depends because but since so much food history is undocumented, it's hard to definitively say anything um, because I don't. We don't always have the full story. 
I'm I'm going to say this. I think that anything in American cuisine is us because we had to make it. We had to make it like, and that's just the end of the story. We did the rolls and we upgraded every recipe that came to America. No, I think I think there's something to that. I guess the thing that's hard to tell is to what extent we changed it. Um, you know, if it was was it a minor tweak? Was it a fundamental recasting of that dish? Um, it's hard. It, I think it's just hard to tell because sometimes we don't get a recipe until the thing until after the thing has been changed. Like the German potato salad, it's not like how we make it. I think we right. made that better. Right, macaroni and cheese. We we certainly put our own thing on macaroni and cheese, right? Um, there's a certain way that we like to make it. So yeah, all of those things. I think cabbage, macaroni and cheese, potato salad. That's ours. I don't care. Come get it back. Come 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 get it back. Potato salad, macaroni and cheese, cabbage, spinach, whatever. Irish Irish people, we got cabbage. Cabbage, our cabbage is way better. Come come get us. Tastes way better. <laughs> Like, like, come on, like, like, that's the type of people that we are. So, like, uh, I think that you know, the, the, these kind of things, these kind of talks are kind of a celebration of our unique culture, our, our unique ethnic group, the things that we contributed and the things that we built on our own. Like, we tried to hold on to certain things based off the conditions that we is. We took from here, took from here, and then we made up stuff. We improvised stuff and, like, you know what, this is what we're going to do. We've been doing it for 300 years. We put marshmallows on top of a Candy yet? <laughs> like you know, like oh, marshmallows. Put that on top of candy yams. That tastes good. All right, all right. Go know, what, you got? what you got? What you got? What you got? I, I'm not feeling that <laughs> one so much. Are you feeling the marshmallows on top? You know what? Nah. Uh, nah. Uh, uh, you know what? You, you know historian. You're right. You know, I I like the marshmallows on top of the candy yams. You know, it don't matter. You're part of my tribe. It's all good. It's all <laughs> good. Thanks for keeping me as fam. <laughs> but anybody else? Y'all got anybody else on it? Y'all got anything? Or I mean, I don't know. Whatever y'all want to do. I got to ask. I need you to speak to how valid sweet grits are. Because <laughs> a lot of people be hating on me. I'm sick of it. Joe, yeah. no, 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 no. You're talking about sugar and grits? So you put sugar in yes. your grits? Oh, Okay, no. this part of the show is going to be edited out. Yeah. <laughs> Salt and pepper over here. But I, 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 so let me let me just uh, I, I am truly someone who can go either way. I did the sugar as grits when I was a kid. And that makes sense. Right. As a kid, you're just trying to sweeten up everything. But as I've gotten older, I, I must say that I use sugar less frequently and I'm just doing the salt and pepper. But, you know, a lot of the times when I'm having grits now, it's it's usually they're seasoned. They're, they're seasoned with something or they're cheese grits. I and like I would, shrimp and grits. Yeah. And yeah. I and then I make a um, I make a garlic cheese cream sauce that I put on it. Yeah. Yes. And I like to use the yellow grits. Yeah. I think this comes from my French culinary school time. Yeah. So when you got that going on, there's no reason to add sugar to it, right? Because you got so much other stuff going on, and you want to get those flavors. Um, and then also the other thing is that there's been a grits revival, so people are definitely trying to have you know heritage grits or heirloom grits, whatever you call them. But not not just the flavorless stuff that's usually industrially processed. But people are, you know, I'm I'm definitely eating more stone ground grits, and I just kind of like the taste of them. So uh, my my younger self would have said, "Right on, brother." But um, my my maturing self is like, "Yeah, you know, you're still fam, but I don't do it as much." <laughs> I like sugar in my grits. I just eat them savory more right now. 
Sorry, yeah, John. Yeah, yeah, that's the same here. I mean, I, I'm not going to frown on it, but I just don't do it as much now. Yeah. I, I, well, I, I guess my bad, my bad, my bad, Joe. Go ahead. I was going to say, real quick, I'm a Toys R Us kid, so sweet grits till I die. <laughs> I don't know about that one, Joey. I was more of the sweet grits at your age than I am now. Talk to me. Get get a look, get get on the downward side of 30 and we'll have this conversation again. <laughs> <laughs> uh that's funny. Y'all are funny. If we're talking about if we're talking about grits though, how did grits became a staple in in, in our uh cuisine? Like grits, because we you could you eat grits for brunch, lunch, you eat gr- shrimp and grits for dinner. Like, so how did that become a part of our cuisine? And I understand that too. Like when you go to like a uh, places like basically on the Gullah Beach coast, they cook grits for real. Like they they have like like grit grain. Like they really cook grits a certain way. It's not instant grits. It's something different. But how did that get a part of our uh, cuisine too? Grits. Uh, well, in two ways, right? So the indigenous people were eating something that you know was the precursor to grits. But basically, they were eating grits, and so it was a survival food. Um, so a lot of people ate that, but then, um, during slavery, man, that was, um, that was some of the meals served. That was like some of the rations, right? That cornmeal that people would cook. So, uh, you know, they would just make grits. And so I definitely in like places like Maryland and upper Virginia, um, getting rations of grits was like a, a very common meal. Yo, that's crazy. Cause that's essentially like how we got our grits is like with the government cheese. It was like your monthly your monthly rations. Right. So it's kind of weird to see that connection, right? Mm. That's similarity, I guess I should say. So I know my Creole people are gonna be mad at me if we don't talk about like jambalaya, gumbo, and you know, all of the stuff that they've contributed and um kind of comes from, you know, Louisiana and so like how did that stuff get incorporated into, you know, um, I guess American cuisine? I know some of the elements come from Africa, but what are all the influences that created that that type of food? So yeah, Creole food is very interesting um, because it's we often just make it about French and um, African and indigenous, but you know, New Orleans was span- under Spanish rule for a while too, so there's some stuff there as well that's going on. So it's it's one of the most complex cuisines that we have in our country. Um, and I, I think that Creole is different from Cajun. And I, I know there are black people who call themselves Cajun, but to me, it's the difference between city cooking and country cooking. Um, so you could have a gumbo in New Orleans that was gonna be oysters, uh, seafood, maybe a certain type of sausage, whereas a Cajun gumbo is gonna be wild game, right? It's gonna be duck. It could be duck and sausage, maybe sassafras, not okra as the city one. So you, you see some very interesting things play out. But yeah, it's really that that fusion um, of French uh, and um, indigenous, African and Spanish. And then on top of that, um, you had a lot of people coming to New Orleans from Haiti after uh, Toussaint Overture had a successful rebellion, right? Um, so that was another wave of new types of French cooking, you know, influenced by the the mix of people in Haiti. So just a lot of stuff comes together. Now, one thing that I um, differ with people is I don't consider that food soul food. I I think soul food is something very specific. And I think soul food is the food of the interior South that was brought outside the South by people during the Great Migration. 
So I consider the food of Louisiana, um, Mobile, Alabama, I think that's something different. Now, you know, you're going to get like, we're going to get hate mail behind. Wait, Creole ain't so full. Oh, we said race. I'm done with y'all. I'm done. I'm subscribed. Yeah, I just think. Yeah, I'm just being I'm just being precise, you know, Um, but I I know some people do that. I just I just think it's something different, because if you look at the cuisine, I mean, the foods are different. You know, what you get in a soul food restaurant is is different than what you get in a Creole restaurant, especially when you're outside the South. No, absolutely. No, we just, no, we yeah, just, no, right we just, that. we know, we know, we know. <laughs> the views and opinions of Adrian Miller are not necessarily the views of preset race. That's hilarious, uh, man. You got to uh, do that. You got to do that. Oh, God. All right, y'all got anything else? Tell them. Um, If I could talk to young Black cooks, I would tell them this. And I I have less reason to say this now than I did 10 years ago, but I'll just go say it anyway. Cook whatever you want. Cook whatever you love. But all I ask is that you be conversant in the traditions of your own people. Like, how many French chefs do you hear say, oh, don't associate me with rustic, you know, French cooking or country cooking? They never say that. They just make it part of their repertoire. And so I just I would just hope that uh, more black chefs would do that. Um, and then the other thing is, um, I would say, you know, there's a lot of exciting things happening in African-American food right now. Um, and I'm seeing really fascinating things with the, what I call diasporic uh, dining uh, experiences where people are trying to figure out what's the connection to Africa with this thing that I love in soul food or Creole food or whatever it is. And they're trying to, in the meals, show the progression to getting to that point. I think that's really cool stuff. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, all right. Um, I guess we can the show now. Anybody got anybody got any uh, last thoughts or any any questions for Adrian or Adrian? You got any last words? Anything like that? We can show now. Before Adrian does last words, I just want to, because I want Adrian to close us out. But I just want to say thank you for being here. We really enjoyed you. We learned a lot. So I'm excited. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, thanks for the invitation. And, you know, my, my hope is that I, I want soul food to go worldwide. Um, and that means that um, it has to be loved and it has to be something that's demystified for people inside the tradition as well as outside um, and cooked. Um, so um, I believe that the story of soul food is one of creativity, uh, resilience, and ingenuity. And it's an effort to, um, express our humanity in situations where our humanity was denied or even purposely tried to stamp it out of us, but we overcame. Um, and uh, I should say we're overcoming because the, the struggle is still real, but I just love the journey of our food and we made some of the most delicious stuff in the world. There's no need to be ashamed of it. We should embrace it and love it. I think that's it. He closed this out. That's it. Uh, All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Reset Race. Adrian, I really, really appreciate you coming on, chopping up with us. Uh, you, you're welcome to come back on anytime. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's it for the night. We'll be back cooking. See that? Back cooking. That's a pun. And you know, our Negroes, we, our rap, cooking and cooking food, you know, add it up. But yeah, uh, thank you for listening to Reset Race. Uh, and uh, y'all enjoy the rest of y'all day. Listening to Reset Race. You now tuned in to Reset Race. Uh, uh.
You're listening to Reset Race. You're now tuned in the Reset Race. Put them back on the grill again. We grilling them. Put them back on the grill again. We grilling them. Put them back on the grill again. We grilling them. Back on the grill again. We grilling them. You're listening to Reset Race. Adults need reparations to make America great. You're tuned in the Reset Race. We no longer starving while others eat off our plate. No. You're listening to Reset Race. We focused on our justice claim. We know what is at stake. Uh, you tuned in the Reset Race. You'll find out we're really about justice and really who fake. On the edge, go back to U.S. Southern plantations. Vineyards, Jim Crow, and mass incarceration. Redline and lynchings, we are old from this nation. You're not about justice if you ain't for reparations. MG, the wise one, cousin mother intellectual. Samantha bringing fire, anti-black, we pressing you. No permanent friends and no permanent enemies. The backbone of the country, the way you need our energy. Go on, sit. Listening to Reset Race. You now tuned in the reset race. Uh, uh. You're listening to reset race. You now tuned in the reset race. Uh, put them back on the grill again. We grilling them. Put them back on the grill again. We grilling them. Put them back on the grill again. We grilling them. Back on the grill again. We grilling them. Uh. You're listening to Reset Race. Adults need reparations to make America great. Uh, you're tuned in to Reset Race. We no longer starving while others eat off our plate. No. You're listening to Reset Race. We focused on our justice claim. We know what is at stake. Uh, you're tuned in to Reset Race. You'll find out we're really about justice and really who fake. Uh, Until you do right by me, everything you think about. She put up on the fried chicken, macaroni and cheese, and collard greens too big for my jeans. Pope steams from under the lid that's on the block. Ain't never had a lot, but thankful for the little that I got. Why not me? Fast food got me feeling sick. Them crackers think they slick. By trying to make this bullshit affordable, I thank the Lord that my voice was recordable. So, hold on, see, it's what I write. And Miss Lady acting like me in jail. Look at him! Look! Look! I got beans, greens, potatoes, tomatoes, lamb, rams, hogs, dogs, chicken, turkeys, rabbits, you name it! Look! Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Reset Race Network.